what's going on people welcome back to my second episode of what's the game mean to me podcast i'm your host jelani brown hope you all are continuing to stay safe and inside and are in good health continue to practice social distancing please and wash your hands follow cdc rules and guidelines especially for my folks in georgia and texas and other states trying to open up as well um, don't rush out and try going everywhere and being with friends and around people and just in the crowd. You know, this is still a very, very serious matter and we should treat it as so. I think I saw Georgia has you know, already reported over 200 new cases just in the past week of reopening some of the businesses. So just, you know, be cautious and stay safe. Um, we don't want this extending further into the summer and fall or even in the next year so you know just be responsible stay safe and stay inside that's my little lecture you know for the day so let's get to what i'll be getting to for the day i know in the sports world everything pretty much is you know come to a halt because of COVID-19 but we have you know had a few events um within this past week we had the NFL draft and you know ESPN has also released their first four episodes of the last dance um kind of sucks they really could have just released it all and you know I'm pretty sure everybody would have been tuned in but I know ESPN has to make a quick buck off of you know off of this and you know extend it as long as possible so making us wait five weeks but you know nonetheless um like I said I told you all my last episode my teams um which of them one of them which is the Falcons so I'll be talking about them and you know how I think their draft went along with winners and losers um, of the draft for me surprise picks questionable picks and funny moments top funny moments that you know I remember as well I'll also be talking about the last dance my opinions um, break down each of the episodes and what stars and others are saying about the docuseries as well all right let me not waste any more time let's get right to it I thought the virtual draft was pretty cool. Of course, they had to go with that format because of COVID-19 and everything going on. But I thought it was really nice um, getting to see the players at home, relaxing, sharing that special moment with their close friends and family. I'm sure the players enjoyed it as well. I know it would have been great to spend a week in Vegas preparing for the draft and hearing your name called, walking across the big stage, hugging Goodell and everything. But I'm sure they would trade that any day to be able to say their name was called regardless and still be on the NFL team, signing that contract and you know getting ready for the upcoming season. I think it also took some pressure off some that may have likely been invited to the green room, but their name wasn't called or selected in that first round, like a DeAndre Swift or someone like that. So I'm glad they said they were in the comfort of their own homes and I'm sure they you know wouldn't trade their moment for anything in the world. I actually wouldn't mind them even moving the draft to be just virtually. The only thing I did mind though was that first day, first round definitely lasted too long. I think it went on about four and a half hours. Like I can't remember in you know recent draft memory, but I don't think it's supposed to be that long. I think I don't know if it was technical issues or you know kind of delayed. Of course, everything getting into the you know GM and his team because everything was online. But yeah, it pushed almost five hours, and that's just too long for me. With events like this, I'm typically on Twitter as well while I'm watching, just because I I know people are gonna make a joke out of anything and they're gonna peep some things. Um, quote unquote, Black Twitter is gonna do that. So I already knew that's gonna find some things and, and point them out, make some memes and jokes about it. So I'm gonna go through, I guess, my top three funniest moments of the NFL draft. Starting with number three, I don't think a lot of people caught on to this one or saw this one. Uh, I heard it, but I believe uh, Henry Ruggs, when he was drafted by the Raiders, his mom was yelling at somebody in the kitchen, the hat, like the hat, the hat, get the hat. And giving him this stern force, 
meaningful look. I, I thought that was pretty funny. I don't think a lot of people caught on to that one, but everybody around him, um, they, they kind of already knew, so they just kind of stayed quiet, had their heads down while she was yelling for them to get the hat, so that was pretty funny to me. Two, I'd say, is CD Lamb. Everybody saw, I'm pretty sure, that video and meme, um, him having two phones in his hand, him getting the call, and then the other hand, uh, his girlfriend tried to you know, slide the phone out real quick, and I don't know what she was trying to see or people or whatever, but he snatched it right back. Um, a lot of people uh, thought it was funny pointing out with the mom, you know, her mom's face and you know, <laughs> the little laugh that she made afterwards saying like I, like, I know that look too well. There's no way in hell that she likes that woman. So I thought that was pretty funny. But later on, he tweeted, like, it was not a big deal. You know, people looking into it too much. I think it had to be something. Either it's something that he didn't want her to see or something that she was trying to see. She must have saw a notification pop up or something. But I thought that was you know, pretty funny as well. And then number one, of course, I think this one was probably the biggest one and funniest one in most people's eyes. Titans offered to tackle Isaiah Wilson's mom uh, forcibly taking his girlfriend off of his you know, shoulders. She was hugging him and everything when she got drafted, you know, happy, I guess, showing her support and everything. But mama's tugging at you to get off. That's her son, you know, that's his moment. So I don't know why she would continue to you know, grab on him and stay hugged up on him. If you feel mama pulling you off, you need to get off. First off, I don't even know why she was that comfortable with just being all draped around him with, with his family there and stuff. Feel anybody tugging at you or pulling at you, you might as well just get off because you know that's mama. And, you know, she's trying to let him enjoy his moment and also enjoy her moment as well because, you know, she had the biggest part in him getting to that stage. So those are my top three funniest moments of the NFL draft. I already know the NFL confirmed they'll probably be using some of the components in this year's virtual draft and future drafts. So hopefully we're able to catch some more of these funny moments uh, in future NFL drafts. I'm sure we will. Um, it's really just people in their raw, natural state, just you know, at home where they feel most comfortable. So it's kind of funny to catch these moments on camera and uh, on social media and everything. So switching gears now, let's get to, I guess, to the real stuff draft picks and how I feel like each pick kind of have an effect on their team and you know the outcome of this season. I'll go ahead and start with my Falcons first. Okay so the Falcons only had six picks this year which means that they had to hit on pretty much every one. Um, so Thomas Dimitrov and Dan Quinn were under a microscope for sure especially after the season that we had last year starting off one and seven and we're supposed to be having Super Bowl aspirations so they're, they pretty much have to get it right or they're out this year. So with uh, our first pick, we went with A.J. Terrell, cornerback out of Clemson. Our second pick, Marlon Davidson, ODN, D-tackle out of Auburn. Our third pick, we went with Matt Hennessy, a center and guard out of Temple. Fourth pick in the fourth round, Mikel Walker, linebacker out of Fresno State. Our second pick in the fourth round, Jalen Hawkins, safety out of Cal. And then we finished up with the punter, Sterling Hoffrencher. Probably butchered his name, but it's out of Syracuse, so. The biggest needs we had going into the draft were on our defense. We needed to get a cornerback, an edge, um, then also you know sure up the offensive line a little bit with the replacement of Alex Mack for with a center and guard. So they did a pretty good job focusing on you know defense aspect. They pretty much tried to hit on all the positions that were of need, but the quality of picks is what. I and a lot of people are questioning. So I'll give my opinion of each pick first, and then I'll kind of go through what the different sporting sites like CBS and ESPN and all those different evaluators said as well. So our first pick, A.J. Terrell, cornerback out of Clemson. A lot of people recognized and kind of knew him from that national championship game, that last game we kind of have to go based off of. And from the start, they was picking on him, they was going at him, and he was getting eaten up. 
So initially, I was pretty upset at the pick. I even commented on Bleacher Report, which I'm starting to get a little bit more active on. Um, I had one of the top comments um, that's fired. I guess fired equals likes on Bleacher Report. But anyway, right when he was picked, I immediately tweeted, as I easily could have traded back and gotten him F-. minus. Can't wait for TD and Quinn to be gone. That was my initial reaction. I just didn't like the pick. I knew it was a position of need, being that we got rid of Desmond Trufant and we're pretty young at the position. And thin, but I just felt there were better cornerbacks in the class that would fit our scheme better. I wanted Trayvon Diggs. He went to the Cowboys. I liked Christian Fulton as well, just coming off a championship at LSU. And he was just more consistent over the year. Jalen Johnson out of Utah. I know he had been dealing with injuries throughout the year, so I think that hurt his draft stock a lot. Um, Just a few of those guys, I felt like I ranked them ahead of A.J. Terrell, and I wasn't the only one. There's a lot of different evaluators and scouts and stuff that think the same thing. So what I was thinking was the Falcons could have pulled maybe a trade um, because there was a lot of talk and action that they were going to either move up or do something. They were all, they were in the media, in the news, leading up to the draft. So I just thought, like many others, thought they were just going to make a move. So what I was thinking was they could have easily traded back and either gotten him or another cornerback a need, also picking up another pick if they were going to go with A.J. Terrell because I felt like that was such a reach at, you know, the number 16 overall pick. But I guess in Bleach Report, I guess I was corrected by a few Raiders fans. They said that they actually wanted him. Someone said they thought about getting him at 12. Another one said that they were going to take him. Um, I think their pick was at 20 where they actually did get a cornerback and he was... Damon Arnett, cornerback uh, from Ohio State, actually was pick number 19, but they corrected me and said they was going to try to pick him up there, that they liked him a lot. So maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. Regardless, I feel like at 16, it was a little bit of a stretch to take A.J. Terrell. So I was pretty mad in the moment. Another reason I wasn't a big fan of the pick at the time is because of the differences in defensive schemes that Clemson runs versus what we run in Atlanta. At Clemson, they run a lot of man, and he was known as a press man corner. And in Atlanta, we run a lot of cover three and just zone in general. So I figured, why would you go with a corner that doesn't match up with your defensive scheme? And his biggest weakness is in coverage because he kind of lacks technique a little bit. He lets the receivers get behind him, open for the deep ball, which was evident and we seen in the national championship game this past year with Chase and Jefferson. So I don't know. That's just one of the things that stuck out to me. Like, why would you go with a corner that doesn't fit your technique? But hopefully Raheem Morris can, you know, do something with him and sure up his technique a little bit. I'm not too sure that's something that's going to happen. I'm kind of just thinking back to what I remember Deion Sanders saying one day on the NFL Network um, that in the NFL, they don't really coach up your technique like that. Um so it's going to be a lot of work on him. He's going to have to get help from, you know, our veteran DBs, which we don't even really have any veteran DBs that play his position, mainly just safety. So I don't know. Hopefully he can partner with those guys and they can figure things out. He's just got to put a lot of work in there to prove why we picked him at 16. After sleeping on it, I did come to the conclusion that it wasn't that bad of a pick. We did go with a cornerback. We did need a cornerback because we got rid of Desmond Trufant in the offseason. And after Okuda and Henderson, the cornerback, that third cornerback was kind of murky. So we went with A.J. Terrell, which he does come from championship background, championship pedigree with the Clemson Tigers, was a two-year starter there, won a national championship in 2018, played in the championship game in 2019, didn't really play up to par, but he played and said he has that experience coming from a great program like Clemson. Dabo Sweeney also spoke pretty highly of him, kind of comparing him to Deshaun Watson just on a different side of a ball. And we know and have seen kind of how Deshaun Watson has panned out in the NFL. 
saying that he would be like the Michael Jordan of the NFL. So hopefully that same thing rings true with A.J. Terrell. I don't know if he said that just because I think in the media got a lot of backlash and a lot of people were surprised that he went that high. Um, when a lot of people thought there were other corners that you know were a little bit better than him, and especially at the championship game that he had. But nonetheless, hopefully, like I said, it, it's true, and he has to prove himself, and only time will tell. But uh, he also has pretty decent size for a cornerback as well, pretty lengthy and athletic. He's 6'1", 195. Hope he puts on a little bit of weight because he is going to be playing against some big dogs, some big boys in the NFC South. Uh, which include Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Michael Thomas, Manuel Sanders, all them boys. So he's going to have to you know, bulk up just a little bit, in my opinion. He's not all bad, though. Like I said, he's pretty long. He's athletic. When he's in positions to make a play, he'll make a play. Uh, has pretty good ball instincts. I believe he played both sides of the ball in high school. Uh, he used to play receiver, so that ball instinct should play a factor. He just, like I said, has to improve on his technique, has to sure up some things, and hopefully Raheem Morris will get his hands on him and mold him into one of our you know, starting cornerbacks and a key piece to our defense this year. In the second round with the 47th pick, we went with Marlon Davidson, which I thought was an excellent pick. He's exactly what our defense needs in our front seven. I actually commented on Bleacher Report and had one of the top fired or liked comments for this uh, pick as well. I said it's uh, definitely an A, exactly what we needed, versatile athlete on the line who's a straight dog. Pass rush got better for sure. Um, and I think it did. Uh, it's going to have to get better for sure, too, um, being that, you know, we're a little thin uh, in the secondary. But I felt it was a great pick, um, mainly because, like I said, his versatility. He can play inside. He can play outside. Um, I feel like he was one of the underappreciated parts of that defense because uh, he played in kind of like in the shadows of Derrick Brown. I think Dan Quinn is going to try to keep him inside, pairing with Grady Jarrett to create that tandem so we can finally have some pass rush and pressure up the middle on quarterbacks. Um, we're definitely going to need it in our newly you know, shaped NFC South. So uh, like I said, I think this is probably the most popular pick of the night for me and a lot of Falcon fans. Like I said, he brings more depth, he brings versatility, and he brings that dog. If you haven't seen this presser about why he chose football and wanted to play football, um, go check that out for sure and you'll see what I'm talking about. But yeah, I'm really excited about this pick and just to see what he brings to the team overall. With our third round pick, we went with Matt Hennessy out of Temple. He's listed as a center, but I know he's versatile as well, can play the guard spot. I also knew Thomas Dimitrov was going to try to go with the offensive lineman somewhere in this draft. The offensive line still underperformed last year after having high expectations with signing Jamon Brown and James Carpenter and also drafting uh, Caleb McGarry and Chris Lindstrom. So it did make sense. We also need a replacement for Alex Mack, who may possibly retire after this year or leave in free agency. So bringing in somebody that can you know learn from him and possibly take over that center position in the future uh, was definitely something that we need to do and address. So I don't think he's going to, you know, have a starting job this year, but I think he can compete for that right guard spot and hopefully slot in for the center of the future. With our first pick in the fourth round, we went with linebacker Mikhail Walker out of Fresno State. I actually like this pick a lot as well. We did need another linebacker, of course, after losing Devondre Campbell in free agency. A lot of people think that Aluakon that we have on the roster is uh, going to step up and be able to fill in his role quite nicely this year. Um, but I do think we needed that depth at that position, just like pretty much every position on defense with us. But looking at his highlight tape, uh, he's pretty quick, you know, strong. He gets the ball pretty fast. Uh, he's tough, uh, likes to hit. So, you know, those are the type of guys that we need on this defense, you know, to give us a little bit of an edge. 
So I'm pretty excited to see what he does. Um, we do run a lot of, I think, dime and nickel. So like he's going to have to you know, compete to be on the field, at least on a starting position on the defense. More than likely, he's probably going to slide in and play uh, a lot of special teams the first year and then, you know, sub in different packages and stuff on the defense. But I do think he's a solid pickup. And hopefully, like I said, he proves just like the rest of the 2020 draft class to be a key part of our defense. The second pick in the fourth round, we went with safety Jalen Hawkins out of Cal. Uh, didn't really see too many highlights of him or know too, too much about him. I do know he's also another versatile player. I think came to Cal as a receiver and then switched over to the safety position. Hopefully that means he has some great ball hawking abilities and great hands to catch because those are two positives to having a DB. I see him probably being a special teams warrior the first year or two, um, and also providing depth to our secondary um, as a whole. So hopefully he's just ready to come in and work just like the rest of the guys. Lastly, in the seventh round, we went with punter Sterling Hoffrecher out of Syracuse. I probably butchered his last name, but I haven't gotten to see any punting highlights of his. I'm guessing he's okay, but NFL.com did give us a D plus for that pick, so maybe not. I do know we did need help with kicking. Uh, we had a terrible time last year with our regular kicker and our punters as well. Matt Bosher was, you know, in and out hurt all the time. I believe we signed Ryan Allen and he, you know, was signed and, you know, released multiple times. If not him, it was another punter. Uh, we also had to bring in Young Ho Ko after letting go of Tevecchio. He couldn't even get out of preseason, missed, I think, six field goals something like that something crazy number you shouldn't just be missing field goals and a lot of them were close uh re-signed matt bryant he was missing a lot as well don't blame him due to old age he was injured as well the year prior so had to let him go brought in young ho ko like i said to finish out the season so hopefully i don't know he does something produces something i think they're going to try to use him for place kicking a lot and you know maybe help him bring him in that punter position uh for the future so Hopefully he, he pans out as well like the rest of the guys. So I'll tell you guys some of the sporting sites and networks that gave us grades and then kind of my ideas and what I would grade our overall draft class. So I'll um, start with NFL.com. They gave us a B plus saying that we you know, met needs, uh, the different positions on defense, which I agree with. Uh, but they felt we kind of reached and went with the players that may not have fit the bill or the best player available at the time sports illustrated b plus um they're big on the marlon davidson pick felt like he's versatile um a different version of tech can slide in and be a, a big part of our defense and kind of thinks that now we're in kind of win now mode after you know going six and two in the second half of the season they also said the uh, mikhail walker and Jalen. Hawking picks uh, were also to add depth and were pretty good picks as well. The sites that rated us the worst were USA Today with a C- and ESPN with a C. USA Today said that they felt our first three picks were pretty solid, but they weren't really missing pieces of a team that's really been underachieving within the last few years. ESPN's biggest criticism was our first round pick AJ Terrell. They felt pretty much how I felt the first day when we drafted them as well. Um, was that it was a reach, essentially, that after those first two corners, uh, Akuda and Henderson, once they went off the board, it was pretty you know, blurry who that third corner would be, but they didn't feel A.J. Terrell was you know, deserving of that, that there was better prospects out there, like Jeff Gladney, Jalen Johnson, myself, I'd say Christian Fulton and maybe Trayvon Diggs. 
They felt that most teams picking at the position would have been able to get a top 10 player on their own board, but they just, I guess, didn't feel AJ was deserving of that. They read him as the seventh corner in the draft and 61 overall prospects. So, I mean, I get where they're coming from. I had the same initial reaction on day one, but like I said earlier as well, at least the Falcons went with a position of need and stuck to the script. I just hope he's you know ready to come in and prove everybody wrong and show everyone why he should have been selected at that 16th spot. Overall, I'm going to give this Atlanta Falcons drive class a, a B, B minus. I do agree a lot with the sports writers and networks that yes, we did address the needs that we had coming into the draft, but the quality of picks is a little bit of a concern. Like I said, AJ Terrell, I'm not going to write him off. He you know comes from a great program and he's just going to have to come in and prove himself and prove you know everybody else why. We select him at 16 along with some other guys. I believe, like I said, Marlon Davidson, I'm really high on him and know that he's going to come in and produce right away. Like I said, I, I feel like he's a dog and he's someone that we really needed in our front seven. Another reason I'm giving the Falcons a B is because with the quality of players that we did select, we still need help in those needs that we covered, mainly at the corner position and in our linebacker core. I think that's where we can focus on a little bit more after this draft uh, because the corner position, I think we're just a little too young. It's like the blind leading the blind. We got a third year corner, Isaiah Oliver, a second year, Kendall Sheffield, and then now AJ Terrell's in the mix. Uh, we just need somebody that can come in and, you know, give those guys a little bit more direction. I do know we have, you know, veteran help with our safeties with Ricardo Allen and Keanu Neal, but I would like, you know, to just see someone that maybe plays that same position as those guys come in and, you know, teach them the ropes and maybe help them on their technique and things such as that. In the linebacker group, like I said, we do have Deion Jones, Lua Khan that's coming. I think he's been with us maybe two, three years. But I feel like another veteran presence that may be able to come off the edge and rush as well, like an outside linebacker, would definitely do well for us. I would also say defensive end, but I just got a notification not too long ago. I think we addressed the depth needs of that. I'm not too sure about the quality. Um, we just got Charles Harris for a seventh round pick from the Miami Dolphins. Three and a half sacks over four years doesn't really give me much or show me much, but like I said, it adds depth and I'm not gonna write him off either. He's coming from an organization that has had a lot of change and not much success in recent years. So I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say that is the reason why he hasn't been very productive in his time in Miami. But it seems like we've been pretty high on him since 2017. Was looking to maybe draft him over Tack McKinley. So hopefully a change of scenery, change of coaching style and scheme and everything will do him good. And he'll be able to come in and be very productive for us on the defensive line. Another reason I think I, along with other Atlanta Falcon fans, were probably a little disappointed in the draft, at least in the first day, was because of all the talk and hype that we were going to move up in the draft and you know possibly select one of the top two corners but it just didn't pan out that way we ended up going with AJ Terrell which he is a talent but just probably wasn't on a lot of fans radars for us to select so I can understand how they were a little upset you know that's a shock to the system I was hoping if we did move up we were going to select Isaiah Simmons he's just a Swiss army knife in my opinion you can put him pretty much in any position on the field so I was hoping if we were to move up it was going to be to select him once I heard that the Giants probably were going to take a tackle at four and the other teams were kind of destined for their picks i was hoping we would you know move up and try to select him but unfortunately that didn't happen for us and i understand why of course we probably would have had to give up some draft picks for this year some draft capital for the future 
and GM just couldn't afford to do that with as little draft picks as we had. So I'm glad they stuck to their guns. I'm glad they stuck with our picks and we're able to hit on those positioning needs during the draft. So just hoping these boys are ready to come in after the quarantine is over, get to work and be able to produce. All right, that's enough about the Falcons. I'll get off their back. Let me get into how I think some of the other teams did in this year's draft. Some winners and losers, in my opinions, and some surprise picks. There wasn't really too many off-the-wall picks in round one, besides maybe Green Bay trading up to get Jordan Love when they still have Aaron Rodgers. That shocked a lot of people, but they're probably just doing the same thing they did with Brett Favre when they selected Aaron Rodgers. So besides that, after doing some research, every other team pretty much went with a position of need. It just really depends on the quality of player that they got at that specific pick. Some examples, the Jets picking Makai Becton at 11 instead of a receiver. They do need offensive tackles to protect Sam Darnold, but I think a lot of people were just expecting them to get him a weapon, especially after losing Robbie Anderson. The Raiders selecting DeMond Arnett out of Ohio State, a cornerback. Raider fans were telling me that they wanted a corner and needed a corner, which I knew, but they said that the Atlanta Falcons pick, A.J. Terrell, is really who they wanted and were targeting. So they went with another corner. Um, you know, he played opposite of Jeff Okuda. But I think, you know, there was a few other talented corners on the board that they may been able to get at that time. But nonetheless, I think they got their guy that they had on their big board, at least. Jalen Rieger going to the Philadelphia Eagles at 21. It wasn't a surprise that they went with a receiver. Everyone knew that was the direction they would go in. But it's just a receiver that they picked. I thought they were going to go with Justin Jefferson, who actually went one pick later to the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, his measurables were just a little bit better than Rieger's at the combine. He's two inches taller, a little bit heavier. He ran a 4.43. Rieger ran a 4.47. But I guess there's something, you know, that's in him that Doug Peterson lines with. Uh, he says he's versatile, the most versatile in the draft, and he's going to bet on himself always. So maybe that dog and that mentality is uh, what Doug Peterson saw in him and felt was the best weapon to pair with Carson Wentz. I think he also said he does some, did something crazy. Like he does 800 push-ups a day or was doing 800 push-ups a day leading up to the draft. So I don't know. Like I said, I think that was just a better uh, a better running mate for Carson Wentz than you know, the other offensive weapons. The Saints went with a center at 24. I'm guessing that's what they need. I don't really keep up with Aints and what they you know need or want or care about in football. I don't really care for them at all, of course. <laughs> so... Um, I'm guessing that's who they, you know, needed and went with because it was a position that needed to be filled. I saw a few Saints fans on Twitter that were upset by it. I did know I think they needed a linebacker. Um, and Patrick Queen was there for the taking, and he was an LSU guy. So maybe that's who they figured they were going to pick up um, instead of the center. Clyde Edwards being the first running back off the board was a little bit of a surprise as well. The Chiefs are so Super Bowl champions, and they don't have many holes to fill. But going with a running back, a lot of people thought that DeAndre Swift or J.K. Dobbins or Jonathan Taylor would be the first one off the board. But, you know, looking at it, it makes perfect sense. He just adds another tool to the toolbox. He fits an Andy Reid-type running back, um, you know, power runner, low runner, and great catching out of the backfield. So lastly, I already spoke about it and spoke on him, but of course, A.J. Terrell with the Falcons. A lot of people felt that was a reach. But like I said, it was, you know, just up in the air after those first two corners. A lot of people didn't know who that third one would be coming off the board. So a lot of people felt it was a reach. Some people felt like it was a good pick. So hopefully, you know, it pans out that way. I'm going to start with my losers of the draft because they also had some interesting and questionable picks I want to touch on. Number one losers of the draft. 
the Green Bay Packers. They shocked Manny by trading up to get quarterback Jordan Love, essentially telling Aaron Rodgers this will be your replacement. I'm sure that's not sitting too, too well with him, especially coming off an NFC Championship appearance where a lot of people felt like they would just add you know, another receiver in the draft and probably end up right back there next year. And I don't know if they didn't go receiver just because their top guys wasn't on the board anymore. I did remember hearing rumors that they were going to get Justin Jefferson or wanted to if he slipped far enough, but unfortunately he didn't. He uh, went to the Vikings at 22. But either way, um, even in the second round, there's a lot of wide receivers that came off the board. Granted, they did have like the 30th pick in the second round, but just to see that, you know, in the second round, they went with a running back in an already crowded backfield with Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams. It just was a head scratcher as well. And then the third round, they went with a tight end out of Cincinnati. So just to see that they didn't go with a wide receiver at any point in the draft was, you know, a little confusing and just kind of signals to Aaron Rodgers, like, we're not going to get you any help. Even Devontae Adams, too. I'd be pissed if I'm him as well because he got to carry the load and been having to carry the load. And he takes a B team he's been on the receiving end of some nasty hits over the last few years in the NFL so I wouldn't be too happy if I was him either they finished out the draft getting three offensive linemen I'm guessing maybe to protect Rodgers and run the ball even more than what they already do they finished out the draft on the defensive side picking up a safety linebacker and edge so I don't know they obviously weren't looking to get Aaron Rodgers any help in the draft they haven't gotten him any help in free agency so I just like a lot of others, I'm not too sure what they're going to do. There's a few, I guess, receivers out there that's still unsigned. Um, Demarius Thomas, um, DeAnthony Thomas, Danny Amendola, Chris Hogan, Jermaine Curse, you know, wide receivers of that sort, but not really any, you know, big names or game changers really, but, you know, veterans that may be able to be productive in their offense. Maybe that's what they'll do. Maybe they'll go sign one of those guys, but for now, they're my number one losers of the draft. Number two goes to, and it feels really weird saying it, but the New England Patriots. And in reality, it's probably not even really a loss. It's probably just calculated moves by Bill Belichick, probably a few steps ahead of us all. Maybe tanking for Trevor Lawrence or even Justin Fields. I doubt it, but anyway, back to this year. They actually didn't even have really that bad of a draft. I was surprised that they traded out of the first round. Their first pick was also a guy I'm sure most people didn't have on their draft board. And Kyle Duggar, safety, uh, went to Lenore Ride Division II school. So, But he's pretty good. They said he's a speedster. They also got linebacker Josh Uche out of Michigan, who has a lot of potential. What I was expecting them to do was probably get a quarterback in one of the later rounds, either like Jacob Eason or Jake Fromm, player of that caliber, um, to come in and compete with Stidham. But I guess they like Stidham. I'm going to roll with him for this upcoming season. Other than that, they shored up other positions of needs in this draft, and they'll probably, I guess, look to add a quarterback in next year's draft, get one of those highly stouted guys. But one thing's for sure, they're going to look a lot different this year, and I'm just wondering who's going to come out on top this year in the AFC. Winners number one for me of the NFL draft were the Baltimore Ravens. Honestly, I think they've pretty much won the whole offseason, in my opinion. They were able to trade for Calais Campbell. They were able to retain Jimmy Smith. They signed Derek Wolfe. Draft-wise, with their first-round pick, they were able to get very fast and talented linebacker Patrick Queen from LSU. They were able to get J.K. Dobbins with my Falcons' second-round pick that they traded to them. So he's going to definitely pay dividends for them in the backfield. They even added two speedy and talented receivers to give Jackson some more weapons in that offense in Devin DuVernay and James Prochet. 
So, yeah, I think the Baltimore Ravens had a pretty good draft and overall have won the offseason, in my opinion. If they're able to continue playing at a high level this year with the new pieces added to the mix, I can see them continuing with the Chiefs in the AFC and possibly coming out. My second winners, and it's going to pain me so much to say it because I'm like Stephen A. when it comes to this team. I can't stand them. The Dallas Cowboys. I think that they had themselves a pretty good draft, honestly. And it's not even because they did too much. It's honestly because they didn't do really anything at all. And what I mean by that is they just stayed patient. They waited. And when it was their turn to select, they pretty much went with the best available people. For example, they got what a lot of people think will be a steal in CeeDee Lamb falling all the way to 17. They stayed patient. In the second round, they got Trayvon Diggs, a cornerback out of Alabama, which I liked a lot as well. In the third round, they were able to snag Neville Gallimore, defensive tackle out of Oklahoma. And these first three picks were really solid picks because these players were valued a lot higher than where they were selected. So that's what I kind of mean by they didn't really do anything. They just stayed patient and got the best available player. They also added an edge and another cornerback, Reggie Robinson, the second. They've also had them a pretty solid offseason as well, like the Ravens, bringing in help on the defensive side with HaHa Clinton Dix and Don Terry Poe. Still don't see a Super Bowl in their future. Probably won't even win the NFC East this year, but I will credit them for having a solid draft and solid offseason. The surprise pick I liked the most was the Eagles going with Hurts in the second round. I'm really not that big on Carson Wentz. Uh, his durability is definitely a question. He's always hurt. And with the pickup of Hurts, it definitely brings in another quarterback that's capable to kind of just be plugged right in. You know, they won't have to deal with like a fall situation or a McCown situation. They are going to have somebody that's, you know, young, ready to go, ready to compete. He's a champion. And I feel like he has a lot to prove. And they're probably definitely going to use him in a lot of packages as well. Knowing Doug Peterson, just seeing him these first few years as a head coach, he takes chances. He's a great office of mind, it seems like. And I know they're going to have something that works for him this upcoming season. Well, those are my takes on the NFL draft. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about the first four episodes of The Last Dance. Disclaimer before I start, y'all don't criticize or roast me too much on takes or things I may have not known. I know a good amount about Jordan, of course, because I'm an avid basketball fan and just him being from my home state of North Carolina and playing for my Tar Heels. Go Heels. I, I grew up watching a lot of Kobe and LeBron, so, you know, don't criticize me too, too much. Anyway, within the first five minutes of the first episode, I already hated Jerry Cross, just like I'm pretty sure everybody worldwide does. I can only imagine how y'all Bulls fans feel because y'all haven't seen much success since. Um, I know y'all had a little stint with Derrick Rose, but that lasted like two or three years and not much came of it but an MVP season. But like I said, it, it's, it sucks to see that one person's ego could be so big and want credit so much that you tear down a whole dynasty in the midst of its success. That's just sad and pitiful in my point of view. He wanted to rebuild. He got his rebuild. They've been rebuilding for about 20 years now. This first episode we got to see his days with UNC and his early days with the Bulls. We were spoiled with a few funny and true quotes by two UNC greats. One, James Worthy, who said, I was better than he was for about two weeks. And then also current head coach Roy Williams, who said, Michael Jordan was the only person that could ever turn it on and off. And he never turned it off. And we definitely saw that in his highlight montage. What surprised me the most in those highlights, well, not too, too much, because I've seen clips of his games and his highlights and such. And knew, of course, we know him as a dunker. 
you know, it was a high flyer, but some of the clips I hadn't seen before and his layup package is crazy. His hang time is even crazier. So that's what I really took most from it all. I was like, Jesus Christ, this man just doing crazy stuff in the air. I don't know how he's staying up there that long. Another part of the episode that I found pretty funny was when he was talking about the Bulls being a traveling cocaine circus um, because it's stuff that he had never seen as a kid. What made it funny to me though was because he was saying, you know, you got your lines over here, your weed smokers over here, your women over here. And he was talking about it being in a hotel room in Peoria. And my girlfriend's actually from Peoria. So we made some jokes about that um, and found it pretty funny. You know, I guess it not really hit so close to home, but it was, you know, done somewhere where she has, you know, grown up and lived most of her life. So I found that pretty interesting. Throughout the episode, they started showing highlights that showed his capabilities and that even at a young age, he was destined to be one of the best players to ever play the game, um, showing that he was you know, on the cover of Sports Illustrated, won Rookie of the Year that year, and also was coined Poetry in Motion. I remember hearing that term a lot when I was younger, but I ain't really put two and two together for some reason. They also flashed back and forth a lot. They showed the Bulls pretty much destroying everybody uh, in 1997, and also showing the theme for the season uh, that Jackson coined would be the last dance because more than likely it was going to be his last round and then also possibly Michael Jordan. So hence the name of the documentary. The final scene showed Bulls fans booing Jerry Cross as they should have and cheering on Phil Jackson and the rest of the Bull players as they received their ring ceremonies for winning the championship the previous year. The second episode was very interesting for a lot of reasons and it highlighted Scottie Pippen which is, you know, the Robin to Jordan's Batman. I was born in 96, and like I said, I wasn't able to, of course, watch, you know, them during their whole reign and run, but I have seen a lot of hardwood classics, different highlights, and things like that, and I've always known Scottie Pippen was that dude. Six-time NBA champion, seven-time NBA All-Star, All-Star MVP, three-time first team, two-time second team, two-time third team, eight-time all-defense first team. Like, you just can't argue with these accolades, man. He was a different breed and a beast in his own right. They were the dynamic duo, probably the greatest tandem to play in history. And just like Michael said in the documentary, whenever they speak on Michael Jordan, they need to speak on Scottie Pippen as well. What I found most interesting, of course, was his story. Um, he was the youngest of 12, grew up in Arkansas, pretty poor. I don't think he really had too many aspirations of making it to the league, especially after not receiving any college scholarships. And he had led his team to you know, state playoffs and earned conference honors as a senior but you know he was able to walk on at central arkansas there he and the school didn't really receive much recognition just because you know they played in the naia and they don't really get too much national attention at all uh, he also was a 6-1 guard and you know luck played a part he grew seven inches in one summer and his averages shot up as well so that and his increase in play helped turn him into a dominant player and started to draw some attention from nba scouts I love stories like this because it shows kids nowadays that it doesn't matter who you are, how you grew up, where you come from. If you have a passion, you love something, you know, go after it and just do it. Just like he did, you know, he was able to walk on and make something of himself. And, you know, that turned into something bigger, turned into him being a you know recognizable superstar nationally and internationally. It also shows kids nowadays in the recruiting process that you don't have to go to that big name school. You're not a failure if you're not playing in the Power Five. If you can play, they will find you. So just go to the school that best fits you and cares about you outside of the sport you play. A lot of kids get wrapped up in wanting to go to one of these big schools like UNC or Kentucky or Duke, 
and be in the spotlight. And that's not what it's about. Just put yourself in the best position to succeed. But back to Pippen, he was drafted fifth overall in 87 and, you know, holds pretty much every all-time leader category behind Michael. Second, second in scoring, second in minutes, second in assists, steals, third in rebounds. But I, like a lot of others that watched this episode, probably would have never guessed that he only made $18 million in his first seven seasons with the Bulls. I was honestly totally shocked by it. I was like, what in the world? Like, there's no way. Like, there is literally no way. Like, being arguably probably at least top 10 players playing in that, you know, era in that time. And being 122nd highest in the league being paid, like, in, like what, sixth on his team highest being paid? That's almost, like, disgusting. I want to throw up here in that. But it's true, and it happened, and I understand why and know why he took the contract. Because, of course, coming from the background, he was coming from being poor, feeling like he had to take care of his family, being responsible in a sense because he made it to the NBA and, you know, making millions now. Of course, he just wants to secure that long-term contract and money so he can, you know, make sure him and his family is set up for that period of time. And I totally get it. I would never fault him for that. I'm sure no one faulted him for that. What I had a hard time with and kept going back and forth in my head about was Michael Jordan's part of it all. I know during the time, another man probably wasn't going to advocate or help another man get money, but it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way that, especially knowing Pippen is like your sidekick and, you know, person that fuels you to play as hard as you play and you guys are having success and a great run that you wouldn't, you know, step in and help in some kind of way or form or, you know, talk to management, especially with the, you know, superstar power and, you know, hold that you kind of have over that organization. Like you could have did something or said something, in my opinion, to get him paid. Because in a sense, you see he's being treated pretty unfairly, you know, the 122nd highest paid player in the league at the time. That's insane to me. And, you know, like nowadays you see LeBron kind of advocating for his guy, especially when he was with the Cavs in, you know, 16, 17 for Tristan to get his money and JR to get his money, even when they really probably didn't deserve it at all. I feel that Michael Jordan could have did something you know, especially if he's going to call him out and say that Scotty was wrong in the situation. And the situation I'm referring to is sitting out all the way till January because he had to get surgery on his foot, which he waited to get before the 97-98 season. I would have did the same thing, too. I'm not messing up my summer and they not trying to hear me or, you know, pay me more money or rearrange my contract, restructure my contract. Like, got me bent, too. I would have did the same exact thing. So, I feel like if you're going to say that he was wrong in that situation, I feel like you're a little bit wrong as well for not advocating for your boy and trying to help him get paid as he should have been paid. But like I said, I don't fault either for the decisions they made. I just felt like something could have been done. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. You know, maybe I'm being naive about the situation, but, you know, that's just how I feel about it. Anyway, the episode shifted back to focus on Michael Jordan and his competitive drive and kind of where it came from as a kid. You know, he was always in competition he felt like with his brother for his dad's attention so I think that's where the fire initially started they went on to talk about how he broke his foot in his second season and was out indefinitely but worked it back to health without the Bulls knowledge at North Carolina the Bulls wanted to take that season and of course if you know Michael Jordan's mentality that didn't sit well with him so he made the organization let him play and they put him on a seven minute restriction per half This was honestly the beginning of the downfall between the relationship with Bulls organization and Michael Jordan, where it all turned sour. And it was only his second season. That's crazy. But yeah, they was trying to tank and miss the playoffs 
and didn't let him play the final minutes of a crucial game that would have clinched them the playoff spot. They ended up winning the game anyway, but, you know, I can understand the frustration and being the type of player Jordan was and the mentality that he had, he wasn't trying to lose and he wasn't trying to tank and, you know, miss the playoffs. And luckily he didn't because he went off for 63 points against Larry Bird and the Celtics. Ultimately, they got swept anyway, but Larry Bird also recognized the greatness in him saying that it wasn't Michael Jordan. That was God disguised as Michael Jordan when he went off for 63 against them. The episode ends with the focus shifting back to Cross and Scottie Pippen's tension as Scottie Pippen crosses the line a little bit to kind of berate uh, Cross in front of the team. He's uh, starting to publicly demand a trade and saying that he's never going to play with the Bulls again. So kind of leaves us on a cliffhanger for the next two episodes. Episode three brought out a party on Twitter and is the episode that people have whipped up the most memes from so far. A lot of people went digging and realized that Dennis Rodman has dated a lot of women that's been in the spotlight, one including Tony Braxton that I didn't even realize. Jordan is famous for becoming a meme, and another one was created out of this episode when he looked at the reaction of Isaiah Thomas talking about not shaking their hands after losing to them in the conference final. But this episode was centered mostly around Dennis Rodman and also the bad boy Pistons. The episode began with Dennis Rodman requesting the have a vacation in the midst of the season and Phil Jackson actually giving it to him. He wanted 48 hours in Vegas and he immediately took off. So it was rumored that Jordan himself had to go and get Rodman out of his hotel room in Vegas that had Carmen Electra in it, who was also in the documentary as well, and drag him back to Chicago for practice. But it actually was clarified that he just had to get him from his Chicago apartment and bring him to practice. But nonetheless, I think Carmen Electra probably was still there. Everybody was raving about how much fun it looked like he had in those 48 hours, but I also found it pretty impressive that he came back to practice and didn't even miss a beat. Something else that surfaced on the internet that I thought was pretty cool was some of his stats from his games that year, which was 0 points, 28 rebounds, 0 points, 25 rebounds, 0 points, 24 rebounds, and then he ended up getting a triple-double with 10 points, 10 assists, and 21 rebounds. Probably the best utility man and menace on defense ever. You already knew he was going to get his best efforts on both ends of the floor and he was going to work in the paint. Somebody said that Raman's who Draymond thinks he is. The episode then shifted to the Bulls and the problems they had with the bad boy Pistons in the early 90s. Me being young, I already kind of touched on it, but I knew they had troubles with the Pistons in the early 90s, but I didn't even realize like the the magnitude of everything, like the Jordan rules, like unsaid rules put in place, like he drives to the paint, knock his head off. That's crazy. Seeing... Bill Lambeer put him in a headlock. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Like, That's overboard. I don't care what era it is. That's not defense. But they couldn't get past him in 89 or 90. And after 90, Jordan said it was enough. And he dedicated himself to the weight room in summertime, which I didn't even realize or think that he wouldn't not be on weights. Like, he would just, you know, solely just be going out there and playing, like, have no type of, you know, weight training program in the offseason or during the season. But, you know, I guess this is just how things were done back then or just how he did it. Maybe he was just so much better than everybody else. He didn't have to lift weights. But he also inspired his teammates to do the same thing. And when they came back next year, 91, pretty much handled them, had no issues with them at all. And this is where all the trouble with Isaiah comes from. Because after getting swept, team just walks off the floor. And I don't know. I tried to see his point of view of everything. You know, they did show the clip of the Celtics doing the same thing to them when they beat him in 88. And he just said that's how things were done back then. I don't know, though. I mean, they showed the clip of Jordan also shaking their hands when they beat him the two previous years, you know, showing good sportsmanship. So, I mean, 
that's all it's about, honestly. He should have just shook their hands, man up, owned up to them losing. The Bulls put in the work that offseason and it showed in that series. Obviously, Isaiah regrets the decision not to shake their hand because it's cost him. It's cost him his reputation in a way. A lot of people still don't like him. Michael Jordan still doesn't like him to this day. It cost him making the 1992 Dream Team pretty much ridiculed in the media, along with his teammates. So I can see where the hatred for him and that team comes from. The fourth episode focused on Phil Jackson, who I've mostly known as a legendary coach, both coaching, of course, the Chicago Bulls and Los Angeles Lakers. But I also got to see a lot of different side of him. I got to see him as a player. He's pretty good. Won two NBA championships with the Knicks. He also was a coach in Puerto Rico, and the stories that they talked about were wild. They said that they would cut chickens and smear the blood of them on the benches, and a mayor shot a ref one time for making a bad call, and I don't know, it just sounded like chaos, but also, you know, crazy and fun. I'm sure it was an environment that he liked to be in, especially once they shared that he pretty much was almost like a hippie. He was on acid. He thoroughly enjoyed doing those type of drugs, so... I would never have guessed that or suspected that from him. But the biggest thing I took away from this episode and the personality of Phil Jackson is that he's not going to try to change the players. He accepts them for who they are. And that's honestly what contributed to a lot of his success as a coach. Dennis Rodman even said, He doesn't look at me as a basketball player. He looks at me as a great friend. And I can definitely relate to that. I coach developmental basketball at Swanee Sports Academy, and I work with kids from kindergarten all the way through 11th grade and of course when it's practice time we're always focused we're always working and making sure we're getting better in the game of basketball but I always try to make sure whenever I get the chance to I'm understanding them more and even asking them their likes and interests outside the sport of basketball because I don't only care for them as players but you know just as growing human beings in general and when you're able to understand your player on a more personal level they will trust you more and You'll honestly get the best out of them when you're coaching them. This year, I was coaching an 8th grade travel team before COVID-19 pretty much put everything on hold. But first thing I did was, you know, create a group message so everybody gets to know each other because these were kids coming from different schools, different walks of life. They didn't know each other. And, you know, to this day, even though we haven't had a practice or anything, we still talk basketball, still send them videos. We still connect and play PS4, play 2K, play iMessage games. So it's just, you know, building that bond with them and being able to connect with them on a more personal level and just kind of be their friend. I'd always see Phil Jackson coaching, of course, more so with the Lakers. And he always seemed so cool and laid back. And I wondered why. This episode definitely helped me to see why. And I really align with a lot of his coaching styles and philosophies. I think it's really special and really important to have that type of connection with your players on and off the court. Well, that's all I have for you guys today. I want to thank you guys for tuning in, listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed. If you all have any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, anything at all, please let me know. I do appreciate any feedback. Um, please email me. I'll make a you know Twitter and some other social media for this podcast soon. But email me at jelanib3 at gmail.com. I appreciate all the love and support. Please tune in to my next episode. I'll be talking to my former coach, Coach Pickett, and former teammate, wide receiver, Will Huzzy. It's going to be a cool, fun, interesting episode. I'll share a really special bond with these two people. It'll be my first interview podcast as well. So, yeah, check it out. I appreciate you all again, and I'll catch you on the next episode.